Welcome to Hope Community Church of Hickory. We are so glad you decided to join us online. Make sure and hit the follow and notification buttons to keep up to date with all of our sermons. Here is our latest message. If your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 37. Today's sermon is going to be a little bit different. We're going to be covering about 10 to 12 chapters in the book of Genesis today because um, we're going to follow more of a story. And if you have been with us over the past couple of weeks, we've been walking through this series entitled Step by Step, where we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lays out for us in the book of Galatians, and we're walking through these one by one. And we want to be very intentional about pointing out that these are fruit of the Spirit. There is nothing on this list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. None of those things come natural to us. These are not things that we manufacture on our own. These are things that are spirit-given, spirit-empowered. However, once we've been given the Spirit, we have all these fruits of the Spirit in us, but there are things that we can do to practically help ourselves walk these things out in our everyday lives and in our everyday faith. So today, we're going to talk about patience. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I pointed out this is a problem for me because I'm not a very patient individual. I'm the type of guy that uh, keeps going, that turns right at red lights just so I'm not sitting still. (laughs) I avoid lines at all costs. I hate waiting around for things. And this is actually the same Greek word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13 whenever he says love is patient. But this word patience is also translated in other translations as long-suffering. The Greek word is translated, it can also be translated this way. Patience can also mean endurance, consistency, steadfastness, perseverance, forbearance, slowness in avenging wrongs. So whenever we think about patience or impatience, we think of it in terms of getting what we want whenever we want it. But this is more about being patient in difficult times. This is more about being patient with difficult people, waiting on the Lord, trusting in him and understanding that God doesn't work in seconds like we're used to. God works in seasons. And if there was one individual in the Bible who showed an example of this type of true patience, perseverance, endurance, slowness, and avenging wrongs. It was Joseph in the book of Genesis. Now, if you've grown up in church or church culture, you've probably heard the story of Joseph a time or two. And if you haven't heard the story, man, it is a wild one. Because we see that Joseph went through some pretty difficult things in his life. But we're going to see that even after all the rejection he faced, the temptation he faced, the false accusations he endured, being forgotten all about, when we look at his story, we see that he chose to endure and to trust. And God did some pretty big things through it. And all Joseph could say at the end of it was, but God. (laughs) So let's pray together first, then we'll get into Joseph's story a little bit more. Father, thank you so much for who you are and who we get to be in you. Thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for being a God that we can really put our trust in. And Father, I pray for all of us right now that all the distractions and the stress of life would cease as we focus on you and your goodness and your glory and your love. I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill me and stir me up because I know without the power of your Spirit, I can't say anything of any significance or importance. So Father, I pray that your name would be lifted up, you would be glorified, and I pray that we would be encouraged and equipped to be examples of followers of Jesus Christ of this world that we need to be. Build us up, Lord. We're nothing without you. 
Jesus, we love you. We love you. We love you. And all God's people said, amen. How many of you like movies? You call yourself movie people. Uh, we, uh, me and Matt, we grew up in a, very, in a movie-watching family. That was one of the things we bonded over all the time. We always liked to have pizza night and movie nights. You know, um, my parents never really made much sense with what they allowed us to watch because we could watch any Arnold Schwarzenegger known to man, uh, but, but we, weren't, we had to mute the intro to Power Rangers because that was too heavy metal. Like, there were some inconsistencies in that. But we love watching movies. And I'm the type of person that can get emotionally invested in a movie. Now, not necessarily by crying, I'm not a big crier. You know, like my two former lead pastors, Alan and Shelby, they could like cry five times a sermon. I guess I'm just not that spiritual yet. Um, I'm just not a big crier there. But there are other ways to get emotionally invested in the things I watch on TV, namely like yelling at the TV. You know, I've been known to do that, especially during sporting events. I remember one time when uh, uh, me and Rachel, we were dating. It was early on in our relationship. And uh, the Eagles had just blown a fourth quarter lead to the Panthers. And um, I knew, I knew uh, all the, the grief I was going to get from Chavis and all the other people around. And um, I did not act very pastorally in that moment. I was just a youth pastor then, though. So. <laughs> but Rachel very calmly and very lovingly said, Kenny, um, if we get married and you act that way in front of our kids, I will leave you. So I've gotten better at it. <laughs> I've been working on it. It's a process of sanctification. Trust the process. We're trying um, a lot today. Yeah. But I can be seeing something. I can be watching a movie I've seen over 100 times, and I can still find myself yelling at the TV. Remember the Titans is the greatest movie ever made. Okay? I would say it's my favorite movie uh, ever made, but I just don't think that does it justice. It is the greatest movie ever made. Made. But even within the greatest movie of all time, it comes with one of the worst scenes of all time. If you're not familiar with the story, um, I'm going to spoil it because you should have seen it by now if you call yourself a Christian. But um, <laughs> the year's 1971, and T.C. Williams High School has just desegregated their schools. So we have whites and blacks going to school for the very first time, and Virginia is navigating all this tension and unrest that's going on. But the football team, the Titans, they're leading the charge towards unity. It's an incredible story of, of this team coming together, Coach Boone and Coach Yost rallying everyone and, and working through their differences to set an example for their team. And then at one point uh, in the movie, they've had this incredible undefeated season, and they just punched their ticket to go to the state title game, 1971, in the state of Virginia. And whenever the team gets back home, they get off the bus, and it's like the whole entire town is out there celebrating. Everyone coming together. It's this beautiful scene. It's like the first time there's been true unity in their town in so long. And Gary Bertier, the all-American linebacker, he's taken in this whole scene. He's seeing the people of his town that are like truly coming together, hugging and high-fiving, no matter what racial or social differences they have. Everyone's finally coming together. He just makes amends with his girlfriend. We got James Taylor playing softly in the background. It's a beautiful scene. So he, he decides that he's just going to take a drive around and just soak it all in. And he's seeing how happy everybody is. And he's looking around. And then he sees one of his buddies. They start pointing at each other. He's like, you, man. No, you, man. No, you. And then Gary punches the accelerator. He's going to do one of these dramatic spinoffs. And every time I yell at the TV, Gary, look to your left. And by the time Gary finally listens to me, a truck comes barreling into the driver's side of his Camaro, leaving him paralyzed from the waist down. 
It is one of the most heart-wrenching, most gut-wrenching scenes in all of cinematic history. I have a hard time even watching it. But you know, some of the best scenes of the movie come after the worst one. You know, the way that they rally together in the hospital, the way they fight through adversity in the state championship game. And it's actually the horrors of that car accident scene that propelled the story to be even greater, making it the greatest movie ever made. I share all that to say there might be someone in this room that needs to hear this today. You may not like your scene, but God's not done with your story. You may not like your scene, but God is not done with your story. How awful would it have been if I just turned off my favorite movie of all time, or I just walked out of the theater the very first time that I saw it just because I didn't like that scene? So many people are so quick to give up on their goals, to give up on the dreams that God has placed in their lives. They're so quick to throw in the towel because they don't like the scene of life they are in at that moment. See, Joseph, he went through some pretty tough scenes in his life. We first meet Joseph when he's 17 years old in Genesis chapter 37. And uh, Joseph is number 11 of 12 sons born to a man named Jacob. Now, Jacob's first 10 sons were born to his first wife named Leah. He didn't really like Leah that much. He was tricked into marrying her. But Joseph was his firstborn son to his beloved second wife named Rachel. And Jacob was crazy about Rachel. So, Needless to say, Joseph was by far daddy's favorite son. He's not even shy about it. One, at one point, he buys him this coat of many colors, just further emphasizing his favoritism. And his 10 older brothers can't stand Joseph. They hate how obviously dad favors him, and they can't stand him. They hate him. And to be fair, Joseph could be a little annoying. At one point, he's pretty much described as a tattletale there. No one likes that. And also, he's prone to have these very vivid dreams, and he has no problem sharing them. Two different times, to make a long story shorter, he has two dreams where pretty much his entire family's bowing down to him. And he has the audacity to tell everybody about it. Say, hey, guys, I, yeah, I'm your little brother, but I had dreams that you guys were bowing down to me. Isn't that cool? And they're like, shut up, kid. No one's going to bow down to you. Second time, dad even gets involved and tells him to keep his comments to himself. But Joseph had a dream. He's getting excited that God's going to do something great through his life, but he was just hated even more for it. You know, you may have some incredible moments in your life where you begin to get a glimpse and catch a vision of what God wants to do in and through you. You start getting excited about it. You start sharing it with other people. Don't be surprised if you get hit with negativity. Don't be surprised if you face opposition. Don't be surprised if you have those people who try to bring you back to reality or put you in your place. And it might even get worse than that. One day, Joseph, he goes out to check on his brothers who are out working in the fields. He just wants to see if they, they need any food or if they need any water, anything like that. And it says, while Joseph was still a long way off, his brothers saw him. They said, ugh, here comes this dreamer. Let's kill him. Yeah, let's kill him. Then they start talking about whether or not they're going to kill their own brother. And then they can't really become unified on whether they're going to kill him or not. So whenever he gets to them, they just beat him up, strip him of his colorful coat, and throw him into a pit while they decide. So Joseph has to lay there in this pit, hurting, beaten up, listening to his own brothers decide whether or not they're going to let him live. Most people would give up right there. See, that's it. I'm never trusting people ever 
again. But this type of rejection, it can either break you or it can build you. You may have heard it said before, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond. Because you can't always control your circumstances. You definitely cannot control other people, but you can always control the way you respond. And Joseph's response is incredible. He doesn't necessarily do it with words, but more so with a lifestyle. So his brothers decide not to kill him. They see some foreign traders coming by, so they decide to sell him off as a slave for some silver instead. Then they take his coat and they cover it in some animal's blood and they tell his father that he was killed by some wild animal. They fake his death. Meanwhile, Joseph is being caravaned off to Egypt, the most prominent world power in the world at that time. And from there, he has sold again to work as a slave in a high-ranking Egyptian official's house named Potiphar. So Joseph is sold as a slave, but that's not the whole story. In Genesis 39, verses 2 and 3, it says the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph, instead of lowering his head and feeling sorry for himself, he decides he might be a slave, but he's not going to live like a slave. His circumstances may not reflect it right now, but he is recognizing the presence of God in his life, and he's going to go ahead and start living as if he's walking in a higher calling than God has called to that his circumstance may not line up with right then at that moment. So he might be a slave, but he's going to be the most successful slave he can possibly be. And this is such a great example in Scripture for us to see because it's important for us to know that success is not defined by your circumstances. Success is not defined by your paycheck. Success is defined by how faithful you are to what God has called you to do right where you are right now. Man, I had to to learn very early on in ministry that my success could never be defined by another person's response. If I defined success based on my response by teenagers, the eight years I was a student pastor, I'd have killed myself by now. I say that in jest, but you know the toll that takes on a lot of people? I I can't change anyone. I can't save anyone. The only thing I can hang my hat on, my success, is being faithful to do what God has called me to do. Love the people he's put in front of me. Preach the word faithfully he's called me to preach. And whether or not people respond to that, that's up to them. We can't put that pressure on ourselves. Our goal is to be faithful first and foremost. So Joseph, he works his way up. And Potiphar is so impressed with Joseph that he ends up putting him in charge of everything within his estate to the point at which the Bible said Potiphar didn't have to concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Potiphar is a big fan of Joseph. But the problem is Mrs. Potiphar is also a big fan of Joseph. Time and time again, Mrs. Potiphar is trying to seduce Joseph, but he's going out of his way to avoid her. He's making sure he's in a crowded room. Whenever she's walking one way in the house, he's trying to go the other. He's trying to do everything he can to avoid her. But one day, Mrs. Potiphar gets really clever. She gets everybody else out of the house. She corners him. She grabs him by the jacket, and then he does one of these little shimmy moves and then takes off out of the house, running away, leaving the coat in her hands. It's also a great example for us to know. You do not fight temptation. You flee temptation. You try to fight temptation, you will, be, you will get beat 9.9 times out of 10. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that we won't experience any temptation except what's common to humanity, but with all the temptation, God will always provide a way of escape. Don't try to handle temptation or temptation will handle you. You flee from it. 
you run from it. So Joseph, he did the right thing. He's got a man of character and integrity. He should be awarded. He should be applauded. But instead, he gets falsely accused. Mrs. Potiphar is so embarrassed by Joseph's rejection that she accuses him of trying to seduce her. Whenever Potiphar gets home, she still has his coat and it's in her hand and says, look, this Hebrew that you allowed to come into our house tried to force himself on me. What are you going to do about it? And Potiphar starts seeing red. He gets so mad. He gets so angry. And then he has Joseph found and, and rested and sent to prison. Golly, can Joseph catch a break? Man, I'm telling you, is there anything more frustrating than whenever you're doing seemingly all of the right things but yet nothing seems to go your way. But you know, things don't have to be going right in order to live right. And it's actually living right when everything seems to be going wrong that will actually develop your character and help you grow the most. And even when everything seems to be going wrong, that doesn't mean that God is absent. Joseph, he's sitting there in prison. But Genesis 39 says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor and the sight of the keeper of the prison. And I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, the Lord was with Joseph? Any of us, if we're experiencing anything remotely to the difficulty that Joseph is experiencing, our first response is, where are you, God? Here's, a, here's one of our points for today. You can never measure the presence of God in your life based on your present circumstances. Don't you think about that. You can never measure the presence of God in your life based on your present circumstances. Understanding that there's nowhere you can go from his presence. Understanding that God is never far away from you. And understanding that he is still working even when everything seems disastrous. Knowing those things, trusting in those things is how you can live with true patience and true peace in this life. Because you may feel like you're in a pit. You may feel like you're in a prison. But just like Genesis 39 says, but God is with you. Can we put that verse back up here on the screen? Some of us, we might need to change the pronoun to that and declare it over our lives on a regular basis, reminding ourselves that no matter what's going on, things are really hard right now, but God is with me. And we probably need to remind ourselves of that over and over and over again. Because you may be going through some horrific family problems. But God is with you. His steadfast love is towards you. And you have his favor. This season of life may be way more difficult than you ever anticipated it would be. But God is with you. His steadfast love is toward you. And you have his favor. It may seem like no matter how hard you try, you just can't get the things to line up the way they're supposed to go. There's so much confusion going on right now. But God is with you. His steadfast love is toward you. And you have his favor. You may be completely directionless. I have absolutely no idea the direction your life is supposed to go, what God is wanting you to do, but God is with you. His steadfast love is towards you, and you have his favor. You see, God, he does not create the chaos in our lives, but he can use it to work something in you that will not only benefit you, but also everyone else around you. And understanding this is where the power in your life will come from that will allow you to endure with patience and can also allow you to be one of those people that could be a little bit annoying, that that has so much joy and happiness even when everything seems to be going wrong. And people want to know what's the matter with you, right? 
Just like Joseph. You see, just like in Potiphar's house, the jailer now in prison sees something in in Joseph, sees that the Lord's causing everything he does to succeed in his hands. So the prisoner ends up putting Joseph in charge of everything within the prison and all the prisoners. Again, Joseph was in prison, but he did not live like a prisoner. He was living already as if he was walking in the higher calling that God had for his life because what God was doing in him was so much greater than what was going on around him. And it affected his attitude, it affected his demeanor, it affected everything about him, to the point of which it probably could have been a little bit annoying. At one point, he finds himself in the prison with two guys. One uh, had used, was formerly the chief cupbearer to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. His job was to taste test all the drinks before Pharaoh drank them to make sure they were good and make sure they weren't poisoned. Very classy job. The other guy was the chief baker. That one's self-explanatory. But Joseph, he's walking around the prison one day. I could just picture him like twirling some keys, whistling a little tune to himself, a little pep in his step as he's walking around. And he sees these guys. He's like sitting on the wall looking down. And he goes over to him and like, hey, guys, why are you so sad? And if I'm then, I'm like, because um, we're in prison, bro. Like, there's nothing else to be excited about right now. <laughs> but, you know, I think it says so much about Joseph and his character that even in the midst of being in prison himself, He's still taking the time to notice there's something a little more off with these guys and wondering how he can help them. Why is that so important? Because for our next point, people of character care for people. They don't allow their bad circumstances just to bring everybody else down around them. They help even when there's no one around to help them. Why? Because happy people help people. They don't just sit around and wait for people to help them. And so many people spend so much time frustrated with other people. There are so many Christians who spend way too much time frustrated with church because we're just waiting for everyone else to come around and help me. But I mean, if you're going to come to this church long enough, you're going to hear me say this probably 500 times. Whatever you want other people to be for you, you first have to be for other people. What's the alternative? We're just going to sit around and be frustrated and depressed all the time because all we're doing is focusing on what everyone else isn't doing rather than what we could be doing. And sometimes the best way to keep your spirits up in difficult times is to stop focusing on yourself and how bad you feel like you have it and start focusing on helping other people instead. And I'm pretty sure I've shared this before, but sorry, Jordan, I'm going off notes, but um, I remember one time scrolling through social media, and I saw one of these like uh, posts up there, and it, it said something along the lines of, "Man, I spent so much of my time uh, trying to help other people, making sure other people were okay. I forgot to make sure I was okay myself." And I saw that and thought, "I'm sure glad Jesus didn't have that perspective. I'm sure glad Jesus wasn't up on that cross whenever the thief next to him said, will you please remember me when you enter your kingdom? And Jesus said, you know what, bud, I'm going through in life right now on my own. Like, I don't have time to focus on you and your problems. You see me bleeding out here as well. No, Jesus didn't do any of that. No matter, even though he was suffocating to death on his own blood, going through a more brutal torture we could ever imagine, he still took the time to care for other people. He took out the time while he was on that cross to make sure his mother was going to be taken care of the next season. He wasn't just focused on himself, on how difficult he, things were for him. No, no matter how difficult things got for Jesus, he's still always focused on helping other people. And the amazing thing is, whenever we follow that example, whenever we do that, 
Whenever you start putting your focus and your energy into helping other people in spite of the pit or the prison you may feel like you're in at that moment, all of a sudden your stuff starts to get dealt with. All of a sudden that depression, that that frustration, that anger starts to lose its grip on your life. And all you do is just get stronger and stronger and stronger. So Joseph, he said, hey, I'm here to help. What's going on? And these two guys, they tell him that they've been having these crazy vivid dreams and they've been messing with their heads and they can't figure out what they mean. And Joseph says, hey, well, interpretations belong to God. I know God. Why don't you tell me your dreams? We'll see if God has an interpretation for you. So the cupbearer goes first. He says, yeah, I keep having this dream where I see this big vine and there's three branches growing off of the vine and then there's grapes growing off the branches and I'm squeezing the juice from the grapes into the cup that's in Pharaoh's hand. What's that mean? Joseph says, man, that's easy. Three branches means three days. In three days, you're going to get out of here. You and Pharaoh, you're going to be cool again. You're going to be restored to your former position, and everything's going to be okay. Cupbearer says, well, that sounds awesome. Joseph says, yeah. He says, but do me a favor. Whenever you get out of here, whenever you get back before Pharaoh, would you remember me? He said, because I know everybody says this, but I'm in prison for something I didn't do. Um, I actually am innocent, so if you could put in a good word with the king for me, that would go a long way. Cupbearer says, bet, I got you. You're my boy, Joe. And the baker's like, hey, hold up, what about me? What about my dream? Tell me my dream. Joseph says, okay, go ahead. He says, all right, check it out. So there's three baskets, right? And these three baskets are full of all kinds of bread, and these baskets are on my head, and there's birds coming and eating the bread out of the baskets. What's that mean? Joseph says, yeah, um, three baskets means three days. Yeah, awesome. Three days, you're going to get out of here as well. Yes. But uh, you're not going to be restored to your foreign position. You're uh, actually going to be executed. So um, you guys want to get breakfast? Or like, how do you move on from that, right? (laughs) But everything happened exactly the way Joseph said it was going to happen. But the problem was the cupbearer forgot all about Joseph. He just goes on living his new life back in his old position, everything going well for him, but he just leaves Joseph back in the prison, sitting around, waiting. And Genesis 41.1 says, after two whole years. Man, does anyone else ever feel like this life with God sometimes feels like just one big, giant waiting game? But here's something that I've been learning and trying to work through over the past couple of years, and that's that if you're willing to wait, you will be able to grow. If you want God to work through your life, you first have to let God work in your life. I had a great pastor tell me one time that before God can greatly use a man, he first has to greatly break a man. Even Jesus said that he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. And Joseph may not have completely understood this at the time, but God, he was using the pit, he was using the slavery, and he was using the prison to prepare him for something so much greater. So after those two years of Joseph sitting around in prison, waiting to be remembered, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he has a dream, and he tries to use every single resource at his disposal to get his dream interpreted, but nothing is working. And the cupbearer finally is like, oh, yeah, there was this guy back in prison like two years ago that interpreted my and this other guy's dream, and he was dead on accurate. And Pharaoh's like, why don't you go get him? He's like, I don't want to go get him. I forgot of him for two years. You know how awkward that's going to be? You know what it's like when you run into somebody, when you forgot to return the phone call? This is like 10,000 times worse than that. But Pharaoh makes him go get him. And so they go and get Joseph. They bring him before Pharaoh. 
Joseph comes in and Pharaoh says, so I hear you can interpret dreams. Joseph says, it's not me, it's all God. Tell me your dreams, we'll see if God has something for you. So Pharaoh goes on to tell him his dream. He said that whenever his dream starts, he sees seven big, fat, happy cows just hanging out, chilling by the Nile, by the banks of the Nile River. And he says, but then out of nowhere, there's these seven skinny, ugly cows that come out of the water and they eat the fat cows. And then another one, something, the same thing happens with some stocks of corn. What does that mean? And Joseph says, hey, God's got you, Pharaoh. I always want Pharaoh, Pharaoh. <laughs> you guys know the song. Real ones know it. <laughs> but he says, the seven cows mean seven years. The seven fat cows symbolize that you're going to have seven years of plenty. Your crops are going to grow like crazy. You're going to have more food than you know what to do with. He said, but then the seven skinny, ugly cows symbolize seven years of famine that are going to come right after the seven years of plenty. So what you need to do is you need to store up all the excess food during the seven years of plenty so you have more than enough to sustain you and the countries around you whenever that famine hits. And Pharaoh's like, this guy is awesome. In Genesis 41, Pharaoh said, it says that this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Man, that sounds a lot like Potiphar's house, doesn't it? He was in control of everything of his estate. That sounds a lot like the prison, didn't it? When the jailer put him in charge. It's incredible that because Joseph was able to endure with patience, the pit, the slavery, the prison, all that was actually just preparing him for the palace. Now Joseph finally made it. And he had a dream whenever he was 13 years old of people bowing down to him and finally He's made it. He's got a family now. He's succeeding in everything that he does. And once that famine hits, he has people coming from all over the known world coming to him to get help. And then two years into the famine, a group of guys come in and they bow down before him. And then whenever they stand up, he realizes it's his brothers. They don't recognize him. Oh, but he recognizes them. These are the same guys that sold him as a slave. These are the same guys who faked his death, ripped him away from his family, and turned his whole life upside down when he was just a teenager. (laughs) And now he remembers that dream he had whenever he was 17 years before. His dreams of his brothers bowing down to him has finally come true, and now he's in the position of power. He can enact his revenge. He can take all their money. He can destroy them for all of the evil they did to him all of those years ago. But Joseph wasn't stuck on that scene. <laughs> and in an example of true patience, he was not quick to avenge wrongs. Joseph understood that there was a much bigger picture here. That dream he had when he was 17, it wasn't about power, wealth, and having people bow down to him. It was about God doing something through his life that would save hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of lives. That's the amazing thing about serving a God who works all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Because they may have intended it for evil, but God used it for so much good. 
So Joseph could be thinking, how can I be mad about being thrown into the pit or being thrown into the prison whenever God used those things to work something in me that not only benefited me, but also everyone else around me? I'm telling you, that kind of perspective, it changes everything. And then a few chapters of Joseph going through an emotional roller coaster, he finally he couldn't keep it together anymore. He says, guys, it's me. Your brother, Joseph, who you sold into slavery, and his brothers are paralyzed with fear. They're shocked because the logical conclusion is that they are about to get repaid to all of the evil they did to him over 20 years ago. But Genesis 45, Joseph says this to his brothers. He says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the fame has been in the land these two years. There are still yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Man, Joseph understood that there was something so much bigger than him and his feelings and his circumstances that was going on here. So instead of focusing on the hurt he had experienced, he focused on God's faithfulness throughout. And he could be thinking, how can I be mad about being thrown into that pit whenever that led me to working in Potiphar's house, where I gained invaluable experience working in a high-ranking Egyptian official's household to help prepare me to be in the position whenever Pharaoh called me into the palace. And yeah, he was falsely accused and sent to prison because he thinking, but that allowed me to meet a cupbearer who put me in front of Pharaoh, not at the exact timing that I liked, but it was the right time, at the right moment, so Pharaoh would put me in a position where I can help all of these And even further than that, Joseph may not have understood this at the time, but the story of Joseph isn't really just about the story of Joseph. It wasn't about his brothers bowing down to him. It was so much bigger than that. God didn't just save and preserve Joseph. He used Joseph to save and preserve his people, the nation of Israel, by bringing them through a famine. So God could one day, through this group of people, bring salvation to all people that the famine of sin had produced. See, Jesus was the true and greater Joseph. The band can go ahead and come back up and we're going to close in a time of worship. But I want you guys to see this correlation here. You see, Joseph was favored by his father and his brothers hated him for it. Jesus was favored by his father and the world hated him for it. Joseph was sold by his disciple for silver. Jesus was Joseph was sold by his brothers for silver. Jesus was sold by his disciple for silver. Joseph was wrongly accused and sent to prison. Jesus was wrongly accused and sent to the grave. Joseph was faithful and came out of prison, given all power and authority in Egypt. Jesus was faithful on the cross, and he came out of the grave and was given all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And Joseph may have sat down at the right hand of Pharaoh, but Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. And just like Joseph, Jesus would look his betrayers in the face and he would comfort them, provide for them, and welcome them into the palace. See, I know that because I was one of his betrayers. My sins, my faults, my selfishness is one of the reasons he had to go to that cross. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved me, Even when I was dead in my trespasses, he made me alive together with Christ by grace I've been saved. 
And now all of us who put our faith and trust in him, he then seats us with him in heavenly places. I'm telling you, when he saves you, he completely saves you. Your identity, your position completely changes. We get to go from rebel to royalty. We go from enemy to friend. And it does not matter how deep of a pit you feel like you've been thrown in or how long that sin, that addiction, that depression, anxiety, guilt, shame, or pain has kept you in a prison. He's bigger and so much better than it all. And we sang earlier about waiting on the Lord. And that word wait from Psalm 130, it means to look eagerly for, to hope, to expect. You see, whenever I was first looking at this, I thought it meant to look forward to eagerly. That's not what it says. It says to look eagerly for. There's action on our part. Our waiting is never passive. Waiting on the Lord is not just sitting around doing nothing until God does something. No, it's eagerly looking for him, seeking him, and seeking his workings in the midst of the pit, in the midst of the prison, in the midst of the pain, and confidently expecting him to work something through. And we can go through the trials, and we can go through them with patience, because we know the scene is just temporary. The story's still going, and the author of it all is so good. That's why we seek him, because We're promised that whenever we seek him with our whole hearts, we will find him. Whenever we ask, it will be given. When you knock, it will be answered. That's why we trust him, church. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet and let's sing a little bit more about how good he is and seek him in this moment. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to share what you heard this week, make sure and tag at hope underscore HKY on Instagram or Hope Hickory on Facebook. If you want to partner with our ministry, you can give online at hopehickory.org.